When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Well, an historic moment today at the MCG for Australian cricket, defeating South Africa for the first time in 20 years on a home test series after South Africa won the first three. So Australia won the Boxing Day test just before, or just about T on the fourth day. Australia wins by innings and 182 runs. And Paul, I think we should revel in Australia's glory. Definitely. Um, It's, it's not quite 20 years, is it? I think it was, it was 2006 that we won that series, unless I've got that wrong. So it's 16 years. That might be right. 2005, anyway. six, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I just wanted to check that I got it wrong. I've got that side. Langer, Hayden, Ponting, Hodge, Hussey, Simons, Gilchrist, Warren, Lee, McGill, McGrath. Uh, it's a long time ago. Yeah, it's amazing that um, we haven't. So a terrific victory today. The, the, the day unfolded as expected. Uh, South Africa didn't really put up much of a fight. Uh, Bavuma made 65 off 144 balls. Varane, 33. Uh, De Bruyne, 28. Uh, but they really never showed any um, glimpses of even looking like pushing it into the fourth day, uh, the fifth day, sorry. Um, the wickets were shared around. There was no standout. Nathan Lyon took three for 58. Um, I thought he bowled well, Paul, in, in favourable conditions. Yeah, it was. I think you're right. It was, it was kind of as we feared. I had been still na- naively hoping that something could come out of this, um, this day that maybe South Africa could make Australia work for it really hard and long, given that maybe Australia would have a couple of um, 
given that Green wasn't going to bowl, maybe Stark was questionable as to how long he would bowl, that they could do something. But, yes, it was naive. Um, it's a disappointing uh, outcome that um, we've said it before. That now this is – we're one test shy and it's going to be a dead rubber no matter what happens, whether South Africa compete in the final test match or not. But we've now had effectively two full international summers of test cricket where the opposition has not even given a yelp. No, no, you, you spot on. Um, in, in South Africa's second innings, I guess to note, um, a very good review by Mitchell Stark to get the first wicket of the day, Irve. Um, there was an LBW appeal that uh, he really pushed for, DRS, and he got it, and that got the first breakthrough. Um, so good stuff from um, Stark there. Also a couple of runouts. Zondo was run out by head and... Um, uh, Maharaj was run out by Labashane and Stark. So um, all in all, just a dominating performance. Got Scott Boland took two wickets, so not quite the heroics of last year with his six for seven. Stark, Cummins, um, and uh, took a wicket, wicket each. And then Steve Smith took the last wicket. Unbelievable. Um, after Nathan Lyon seemed to injure himself, Smith bowled some leggies and uh, took Ningidi's wicket. We haven't seen that for a while. Yeah, and I wanted more replays of it because it looks like a really good ball. It's fun a long way. Um, I, I would like to be able to watch that again at my leisure because it looked like a uh, a bit of a gutting ball. Um, but look, the thing that I find so hard to kind of fathom is that prior to the sandpaper incident uh, totally overshadowing everything else, that series in South Africa four years ago sort of felt like Australia had worked hard, but then were just overpowered by South Africa. And you got the feeling that, even if the sandpaper thing hadn't occurred, that South Africa were a, were a better side. Now, I know the personnel has changed a lot, and I know it's now an Australian home series. But you just kind of get the feeling that if they were to play um, 25 test matches out here over the coming months, Australia would win about 15 of them, and then more, about 20 of them. South Africa seem like they're vastly off the pace. Yeah, their batting seems way below the pace. That they need to find a few class batters. You know, they've still got a good bowling attack, but you know, it, it's sort of and it has echoes of when Australia's golden generation retired. That can actually take a long time to replace them. Um, so yeah, they're going through those pains at the moment. Interesting. At one point, Mitchell Stark, um, I think, warned Thanos De Bruyne for um, backing up too far at the non-striker's end, and uh, Stark didn't affect the man cad, but certainly warned him a couple of times and made it clear that he, if he kept doing it, I think he would have done it. And uh, yeah, I don't mind that. that. I think that's the that's what I think I would do. Um, I, I'm not criticising people for actually breaking the bales, but I just wouldn't want to bring that. Um, scrutiny and controversy onto myself. Who would want to do that? Um, you know, it's a braver person than me that would invite the the firestorm that that is going to come. And a lot of it would be in your defence. But <laughs> I'd just rather live a nice, quiet life. So <laughs> yeah, I think warning um, kind of makes sense. It's and it's sort of achieving what you want it to achieve to stop them from backing up too far. Yeah. Uh, David Warner was the player of the match. I think that was pretty fair. A few people mentioned where the Cameron Green would be, but uh, that. Innings from Warner was so phenomenal. He deserved the Player of the Match award. Um, and the total attendance, um, well, the attendance on day four, Paul, was 13,906, and the total attendance was 155,714. So I think the death of Australian cricket is vastly overstated. It annoys me that um, people from England flick on and see that the stadium looking largely empty and um, say, what's going on? And uh, the, the point needs to be made. That firstly, 
um, 13,906 uh, is a, a crowd that would, it wouldn't full it wouldn't fill most English grounds, but it would be, uh, they'd be well more than half full, many of them. Uh, secondly, um, I had a look. If this ground game had been held in England, the attendance that you mentioned then, that would be the second biggest attendance in the history of English Test cricket ever. Um, wow. By about 3,000. The 48 Test uh, at Leeds when Bradman scored 173 not out of the final day, that got about 3,000. Don't mention more. Bradman on this show after that letter. Please. <laughs> that would um, that was the only one that beat, and, and people would say, "Well, they've got smaller stadiums," and, and that is true. But there's no law against them building bigger ones. Um, and the the, the other thing that I, I'm on this rant that people st- still saying, "Oh yes, we acknowledge that the overall crowds are bigger," but England do turn up on days three, four, and five, whereas Australians don't. The reasons that we don't are one that we've been able to turn up on days one and two. If the MCG was a 25,000 seat stadium and that you had uh, the best part of 40,000 people on day one who had wanted to attend who couldn't have, of course they would have then booked in tickets for days um, three, four and five. The reason England sells out days three and four so far in advance is that people have no choice. Uh, And then finally, uh, England is a tiny country with 50 million people. Australia's got five cities and vast emptiness in between. It's, it's, It's not really feasible to go to the MCG on a whim unless you live in effectively Melbourne or one of the small cities surrounding it. Whereas if there's a test match in Manchester, you can live pretty much um, anywhere in half of England or uh, and get there pretty easily. I've told you before on this podcast how a friend of mine uh, was in London and was going to go to the, the cricket in Leeds and just thought, oh, I didn't realise Yorkshire was so close. I'm not even going to bother booking a hotel. He just commuted um, to Leeds and back. You certainly can't do that in Australia. So um, that's a long way of saying, yes, I've been a bit annoyed by <laughs> the people in England mocking our crowds when this, as I said, would have been the second highest crowd in the history of England cricket. Yeah, I concur. Jared uh, Waitley from SEN has had to give up his campaign to have Warner drop from the team. So he's moved on to um, a campaign for starting the Boxing Day test at 12 p.m. every day because it, it's light late at that time of the year and he thinks, you know, 10.30 a.m. is a bit too early, especially on Boxing Day, but he thinks the whole week if you started at 12, you get a lot of people who come to Melbourne, you know, they could do stuff in the morning and then they could watch the cricket from 12 to 7.30. Um, you know, it's I, I love that idea. Yes. Now, does that mean that they would have to have the uh, no I, Red Bull? Almost... He was Red Bull. Yeah, but I think that I know that the light stays late in Melbourne, but it, when when the one dayers are on, they do turn the lights on at the start of the second innings, uh, which is kind of six forty-five. The second innings begins, and you might argue, well, it's probably not needed. But I think that you'd have troubles with the lights um, with the light later on. Uh, he's almost saying you need a pink ball test match. I, I would say to the broad, what do the broadcasters want? And if the, what does the free to air broadcaster want? And I think they wouldn't be all that happy because it would then mean that they've paid a hell of a lot of money for the test match. And the last session is going to be competing with their news and whatever insane current affairs show they have um, after their news. So I, I don't, dislike the idea but i suspect that the free-to-air broadcaster would dislike it and therefore uh, i just think that then it's not feasible mm, yeah i, I also go the full way and go day night mm. and then i'm then i'm amenable to that as well although i like it being as it is but i i would certainly be willing for them to try a day night test match at the mcg once to see how it goes 
Yeah, I wouldn't even mind them just starting at like a traditional time of 11 or maybe even 11.30 just to give people a bit more time to roll in there during the holiday season. I mean, anything else you want to um, bring up on, on this test match, Paul? On TikTok, um, which shows how young people are, a couple of people have written um, comments to me saying that they think this is the best Australian side of all time. Now, before you're going to say the best podcast of all time, but go on. Well, of of course it is. But before you scoff, dear listeners, remember that everyone on TikTok was born about five minutes ago. So for them, many of them, (laughs) I don't think even have memory of last summer. Um, So it's a very very young audience. Um, But I was kind of saying, well, you know, the Australian side of the late 90s and early 2000s. And they're all like, wow, you know, that's before I was born, dude. Uh, (laughs) I didn't get a chance to mention 1948. Um, But I think that they have a point, and we we did talk about this a couple of years ago, that when you look at this side and look at their overall record, it is starting to elevate itself to one of the very good Australian sides of all time. And just just taking a snapshot of it as it looks at the moment, where you've got um, Warner and Kawaja both averaging in the mid to high 40s, followed by Labashain and Smith averaging, you know, touching on 60 between them. Head, who's now averaging into the mid 40s, and Cameron Green, who is not yet, but it could be anything. Carey, who's looking really, really good. And then a bowling attack with um, the three big quicks plus X number of quick quicks on the bench who are very, really good, very good as well. And Nathan Lyon. Um, it compares pretty favorably, I would say, with almost any Australian side, with the exception of that late 90s, early 2000s side or the 48 side. I still think they're above. There's an argument to say this is the third best. Yeah, it's interesting. I still think this Australian side needs to do a lot of work overseas. True. You know, they, True. they need to win in England. I, I don't think winning in India is the be-all and end-all of determining whether they're a good side, but you know, a great side. But I think you know, if they next year were to win in India and England, then undoubtedly you'd have to sort of put them in that pantheon. Um, yeah, yes. I agree. I think that that's, that's a very good point, that with their records at the moment, they're looking really good. Um, if they go to India and win over there, win the World Test Championship and then win the Ashes in England, and then the, the sort of the nucleus of or most of the side is still intact, then I think it would really make strong claims to be the, the third best Australian side of, of all time. It sounds wrong saying that. And probably people are thinking, oh, that's come on, you're going on a bit too strong. They haven't really won anything yet. But just with the personnel they've got, it is a pretty good side. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and there will be a bit of speculation about what the 11 is made up of at the SCG with the fact that uh, Cameron Green's ruled out, Mitchell Stark's in severe doubt. Um, and, and since our show yesterday, Paul, I've sort of thought a lot about it. And now that Australia have secured the series 2-0, I wouldn't be upset if they back Kerry at six, pick a second spinner, and then, say, pick Josh Hazelwood for Mitch Stark and went with a five-person uh, bowling attack for this one match because I actually do think it's important we we have a look at what our lineup with two spinners is like. It's a good point. I, um, I'm not averse to them trying something, but I just don't know that it actually tells you that much. That um, what would it tell you um, with the India series uh, ahead? I, I just don't think you actually learn a whole lot from it. I've read that they're talking about maybe bringing in Ashton Agar um, instead. And I'd be quite happy for that. I I think that would, that would be okay. If Ashton Agar came in for green, um, I'd be okay with that. But I'm always a bit wary of the notion of you've got to sort of uh, make selection changes for a current match with a view to matches in the future. Because I often can't see how that actually benefits. 
Mm. I mean, it would need to be a turning track at the SCG, so it would. That's that's my rationale. But actually, I was at the Sydney Cricket Ground last night, and I've been there a lot over the summer. And, and and my thoughts around the test pitch is they're trying to make it a traditional dust bowl, but they actually haven't quite nailed it. So what we're getting is a pitch that's a bit up and down, not particularly fast where most bowlers get a little bit bit of help if you're accurate. You know, if you sort of hit the same spot, then the natural variation will get the batters out. So I don't know if that's actually a great pitch or not, but who knows what we could see at the SCG. It could be another quick test match. Well, I'm keen not to judge it before it happens, but if it does pan out that it is lacking in pace, then I'll be disappointed because I think that that's – pace and bounce are the two single biggest factors in – making an attractive spectacle. Uh, if the we, We've been to some games at the SCG, not in the last couple of years, but in probably three or four years ago where it was very, very slow and batters were getting hundreds off 220 balls and it was uh, never looking in danger, but also never really being able to score all that quickly. I really hope it's not a pitch like that. That would, that would suck. Yeah, I agree. So I was at the Big Bash last night, and it's not the test pitch, but Nick Maddinson, the renegade skipper, described the the pitch as being shit and said it was bad in every way. Um, so that, that doesn't all go well for the test match, but um, it, it, it was it was he didn't mince words, and uh, it was it was a different strip, as I've said. Uh, but you know, facing Norkia and out on a pitch up and down, I mean, we could have more broken fingers. So look out for that. Um, but yeah, it's going to be exciting leading up into the SCG test. It's not till the fourth of January now, so there's a bit of a gap um, for those um, that listen to Pete Lawler and Gideon Hayes podcast. Um, Jaleesa and I are going to their live show next week, so if you're there, come and say hello. Um, totally understand if a lot of you have dived on that podcast, uh, Paul. Any anything else before we wrap this up? Oh, just last thing is that um, you know, I often say that the importance of the captain is vastly overstated, but there are times when I think it does matter, <laughs> and I think that uh, when I'm they're really bad, when they're really well, really bad. Well, I don't want to be too harsh on Elgar because I, you know, I the captain can only do so much, and they were outclassed by. Australia in these first two test matches. Who knows? Maybe they'll thrash us in Sydney and it'll, it'll look better. But it doesn't look like that likely at this stage. But I just think I'm sick of overseas captains turning up here and making the same mistakes year in, year out, when it, to be a, um, a good tactical captain in test cricket requires very, very little. Um, you know, Michael Holding and Ian Chappell could probably produce a one-pager uh, an A4 sheet that could be handed to the captain as as they walk into Australia. And it just says, you must follow these instructions. And they would be so much better for, for doing so. Uh, you, you, there's all this talk about baseball and everything else. I think part of it is they just play a little bit with freedom and with a little bit of intelligence. Just um, don't shirk on the slips. Don't put the field back unnecessarily. You can always put the field back later if you're getting hit around a little bit, but the, the, the value of saving four runs is questionable when you're going to potentially miss on uh, catching opportunities. Um, bat with some aggression. Uh, bowl with discipline. Don't try and bowl bounces every second ball. Um, and if they had done that, the, they, they would have performed so much better. That Just this going out there batting very, very defensively um, and then bowling wide and trying to bowl too fast and with a deep set field. It's just bizarre, um, and I, I just find it 
disappointing. Um, you know, Joe Root was the same, and at least he had the the good grace to sort of say when um, after Stokes's uh, kind of leadership had led to their a succession of great victories in in the winter in England over there. He sort of said something like, you know. Uh, it's so good to have a captain who knows what he's doing. Um, he had some 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 self awareness, but uh, it's not difficult. That's the thing. I, I don't understand why captains cannot grasp that. Yeah, no, it's a good point. Elg has had a shocker, and South Africa will be searching for answers. All right, well, that's it for our wrap from day four of the Boxing Day Test. I'm not sure when we'll be back, Paul, but we'll certainly be back early in the new year, heading into the SCG Test. Uh, thanks everybody for listening. Follow us on TikTok um, at Cricket Unfiltered, and uh, we'll be back soon. See ya. <laughs>